Hello, all my wonderful listeners, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. Now, sorry if you are listening today. This episode did come out late. I'm not sure if you heard my update yesterday prior to this coming out, but I have been extremely sick, um, I guess with a bad flu or something. It's been brutal. So I hope you all are keeping yourselves healthy and take your vitamin C and drink lots of water because I don't know if this is the flu that's going around or what, but it has been brutal. So thanks for your patience. As I worked to get the energy up to record this episode, it's actually been written for a while, but I just did not have the oomph to sit down and record. So thanks so much, guys. So brief mention here, I said this in the last episode, but I am opening a Patreon account. So you can either access that from patreon.com slash altitude crime, or if you go to altitudecrime.com, there is a link up near the top that says Patreon that will get you there. So that is $5 a month. That's going to include an additional full length episode every single month coming out on the 15th. So that'll be coming out this week. I am still building some stuff into that Patreon page. So you see that stuff start to come up. You'll also get the perks of ad-free listening. I do have a few episodes that have ads on them that will come off and it'll be ad-free in the future as the podcast continues to grow. And you'll also get 10% off merchandise all year round. So if you're able to consider that and give to the podcast, I certainly appreciate it. But you know I appreciate my listeners no matter what. So if that's not in your wheelhouse or just not in your financial portfolio, I am certainly happy to just have you as a listener here every single week. You guys are what has made Altitude Crime what it is today. So I thank you no matter what. So today we're going to be diving into our second part about Ted Bundy in Colorado. Now we're going to cover a few cases here that don't quite have enough evidence to have charged Bundy or really close those cases, but Bundy has confessed to them or there's some kind of evidence that does link him, just not strong enough to really close those out all the way. These quote-unquote unsolved cases will bring Bundy's total list of victims in Colorado to five. I did also do some extra digging on the Colorado Bureau of Investigation cold case files just out of curiosity to see if there were any other cold cases that seemed like they might fit the time frame in Bundy's you know, the looks that he liked to go for, his MO. And I did find some girls that did kind of fit the look that he liked, but they were often in times that we know for sure that Bundy was in custody. Uh, My question was of if he could have committed murders in Colorado at the times that he had escaped from prison, both from Pitkin and from his second escape. And that looks to not be the case. I could be wrong, but from what I looked through, there wasn't anything glaring that really screamed out to me. So I think these ones that are a little bit more publicized are really the only ones in Colorado at the time that you really can potentially connect Bundy to. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into what those cases are. So the first case we're going to cover today is that of Melanie Suzanne Cooley. 
She was born on October 27, 1956, and was a teenager at the time of her killing. She was actually only 18. So Melanie often went by the nickname Susie, but for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to refer to her as Melanie. There have been some episodes that I've used a victim's nickname, but I oftentimes don't feel that I have the right to call them by that because I'm not like a loved one or a friend. So we'll refer to her as Melanie as we continue to cover her case. Melanie went to Netherland High School, which is just about an hour northwest of Denver, and she was a senior there. Well, on April 15th, 1975, Melanie left the high school for the day and was last seen in Netherland hitchhiking. She would not be seen again until her body was found on May 2nd, 1975. Melanie's body was found on the side of the road by a road maintenance worker, and this was in Coal Creek Canyon. It was evident that Melanie had been hit in the head with a large rock to the point that her skull had been crushed. There were also signs that she had also been strangled. In looking into Bundy after the fact, he was placed in the area on the day that Melanie went missing by receipts from a gas station. He had actually filled up his car with gas in Golden, Colorado at a Sinclair station. Now, Golden is about 45 minutes southeast of Netherland, so very close, very easy to get there within a day. Golden is often called the gateway to the Rockies, and as we may see here, it actually may have been the gateway to Ted Bundy's Colorado killing path. Melanie's murder would have happened less than a month after he abducted Julie Cunningham. There's about two hours of drive between Vail, where Julie went missing, and Netherland, where Melanie went missing. While Bundy's name has come up in Melanie's case often, there's just not a lot of evidence to tie him to Melanie's case and actually close her case. Melanie's case remains unsolved to this day and is currently a cold case. If you have any information about Melanie's disappearance or her murder, please call the Jefferson County Cold Case Investigators at 303-271-5195. You can also email them at coldcase at jeffco.us, so that's J-E-F-F-C-O dot U-S. Another case that is often tied to Bundy is the case of Shelley K. Robertson. Shelley was born on July 27, 1951. And let me tell you, Shelley had every little girl's dream. While she was growing up, she had a dove gray mare named Bonnie, and she rode this horse bareback as she was growing up. I mean, what little girl doesn't want to have a horse in their backyard to ride around all day? Shelly had a really interesting start to her adult life. So Shelly graduated in 1969 from Arvada High School, which is in northern Denver. She then went on to Biloxi, Mississippi. She was in Mississippi for one year. She was actually doing a mission there through the United Church of Christ. After her year away, she went to Red Rocks Community College She studied Spanish while she was there, and actually as a part of her curriculum, one of Shelley's classes spent a semester in Bar de Navidad in Mexico. 
this town was a fishing village and Shelly just really fell in love with the place and with the people there. And she would actually go back and visit a couple of times after she left with the class. After attending Red Rocks Community College, Shelly went with a friend to work processing fish in Clam Gulch in Alaska for a year. Her family really encouraged Shelly to take these travels on and take these opportunities. According to Kristen Iverson's reporting for the American Scholar, Shelly's mom had told her, quote, you can always come back to your hometown, unquote. What's really, really sad about Shelly's story is here she was so adventurous and she maybe took these risks that some women at the time maybe would have been afraid to take of just kind of picking up and going to a different country or different states and doing different things. But it would actually be her hometown that she would disappear from. Shelly disappeared on June 29th, 1975. She was 23 at the time that she went missing. Shelly was actually in Golden, just outside of Denver at the time. And according to some stories, she had gotten in a fight with her boyfriend and they had been in the car together and he pulled over to let her out because she just wanted to get out of the car. But some stories say that Shelly was actually waiting for a bus or trying to hitchhike home. Now, you can question that story of if those go together, if they're two conflicting stories, or if the whole story could be fabricated. We've actually heard a similar one in the case of Denise Oliverson that we covered last week. In her case with Ted Bundy, she got in a fight with her husband and left the house on bike trying to get to her parents' house and fell into the clutches of Ted Bundy during that time. So you do have to wonder, as the lore of Bundy continues, of does that affect how these women's stories are told, even when it's somebody like Shelley that's not... 100% confirmed Ted Bundy's victim, but she's attached. Does that change how her story is told? Shelley's body was found seven weeks later on August 21st, 1975. She was actually found in a mine shaft of the Willie May Mine. Now, this mine is located on Berthed Pass east of Berthoud Falls, Colorado, which is kind of near Georgetown. So this area is about 40 minutes west of Golden, where she went missing. It's also kind of near Winter Park Resort, if you're familiar with that area. Two engineering students who were out hiking entered the mine and smelled something decaying, and then they decided to head out of there. Then they actually went back two days later on August 23rd to actually find her body. So it was thought that she was there on the 21st or not specifically that she was there, but something was there. And then her body was actually found on the 23rd. Her body was 500 feet down the mine or about 152 meters. Shelley was found nude and bound with duct tape. While Bundy was in Salt Lake City, Utah, serving time for the kidnapping of teenager Carol Durant, this was shortly before he was then extradited to Colorado, there was a Clear Creek County investigator named Bob Dinning that went there and interviewed him specifically about Shelley's case. And Bundy actually admitted to murdering Shelley, but then refused to talk in any further questioning. According to the Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons website, Bundy's reply to questions about Shelley was, quote, I don't want to talk about that, unquote. So that leads me to believe that something about Shelley stuck with him. 
And you can maybe even say in those moments that Shelly won. Even though we don't have a lot of answers about Ted Bundy's involvement in her murder, she clearly bothered him somehow. And maybe that's kind of the universe's way of giving her a win. Receipts from this time frame also proved Bundy was in the area about a day before Shelly went missing. And again, the spot that the receipts came from was the Sinclair in Golden that really obviously was his fill-up spot when he came to Colorado. I will say the timeline of Shelly's killing as far as where it fits in the timeline of Ted Bundy killings is a little odd. Doesn't mean that it's not possible, but it is a little weird. So Shelley's murder would fit into quite a few that happen in the course of about five months. So Julie Cunningham was abducted and killed in March 1975. And then if we believe that Melanie, who we just talked about, is a Ted Bundy victim that happened the following month in April. So you have two Colorado victims very close together, which makes sense. Then in May 1975, he murders Lynette Culver in Pocatello, Idaho. So that gives him, you know, time to get from Colorado to Idaho. Then on June 28th, He murders Susan Curtis. He abducts her from the BYU campus in Utah. So again, you have time between May to June of him getting from Idaho to Utah. And this would mean that the following day is the day that he abducts Shelly. So totally possible to get from Utah to Colorado in a day. But it does seem a little odd to me that it's such a fast turnaround. You usually see a little bit more time between some of his victims that are in different states. And they're typically more clustered together. So just a few days later, after Shelley's abducted on July 4th, Bundy is accused of killing Nancy Bard in Layton, Utah. And I do believe she's maybe another unconfirmed victim. So that time frame could be a little different. But the timeframes are possible, but that does seem like a lot of hopping around. Although this is a time where Bundy starts to escalate a lot more, so it's totally possible. So while the timeline does get tight, it doesn't rule Bundy out by any means. Bob Denning, the Clear Creek County investigator that went and talked to Bundy in Utah, has publicly stated that he believes that Ted Bundy killed Shelley and that he's 99% sure. Strangely enough, though, another killer did actually admit to Shelley's killing in addition to Ted Bundy, and this is a man named Otis Toole. And I'm going to touch base on him a little bit here and kind of segue off a little bit because it is an interesting note. So Toole was a ninth grade dropout that initially came on police's radar in 1964 when he got charged with loitering. He first became a murder suspect in 1974 in Nebraska, and then in 1976, he met a man named Henry Lee Lucas, and the two have been connected to 81 separate criminal cases. Toole was actually close friends with Bundy in jail, and there's this story that supposedly they were sexual partners in jail, and that their foreplay was them discussing their crimes together. So some say that as a friend, Tool would have had some motivation, even if he didn't kill Shelly, to admit to her killing just to keep some heat off of Bundy. So take from that what you will. 
Regardless, Tool's confession to Shelly's killing just didn't really add up. It didn't really make sense with what police knew. And it was actually not the first time he falsely confessed. To all my people that know true crime well, he actually confessed to a very public case. Otis Toole first became widely known to the public when he falsely confessed to the murder of six-year-old Adam Walsh in 1981. For those of you that aren't familiar with this case, Adam's dad, John Walsh, went on to become a victim advocate and then also began to host America's Most Wanted. Okay, I'm done with that side note on Otis Toole, but I thought that was pretty interesting. But regardless, Shelley's case has not been a confirmed case for Ted Bundy in that it's not been closed and it is an open cold case. If you have any information about Shelley's disappearance or murder, please call the Clear Creek Sheriff's Office at 303-679-2376. There is one more case I wanted to cover in this episode. Now, this victim is actually not a victim from Colorado, but her body was found in Colorado. And that's Sandra Jean Weaver. Sandra was 19 years old, and she was originally from Wisconsin. But she was living in Tuila, Utah, which is about 30 minutes southwest of Salt Lake City in Utah. She actually went missing from Salt Lake on July 1st, 1974, and her body was found the following day in Grand Junction, Colorado. Sandra's killing is unconfirmed, but it would have come at the time between the murder of Georgianne Hawkins on June 11th in Washington and Janice Ann Ott and Denise Marie Nasland, which happened on July 14th in Washington. So again, this would have given him plenty of time to travel, but it would have included a hop to a different state. So I just wanted to mention Sandra's case as she was actually found in Colorado. So that's what we know in full depth of Bundy's time in Colorado. We have his confirmed victims and prison breaks that I covered in the last episode and then these unconfirmed victims. But I do have a lot of thoughts on these last two episodes and I've saved some of them for today. Musing number one. So I knew pretty much from the time that I started the podcast that these Bundy episodes would be our one year anniversary episodes. And something that stuck with me, even from when this was just a conceptual thing, and I thought, you know, I want to split this into confirmed victims and unconfirmed victims, was I don't really find a lot of information on Shelley or Melanie's case of other avenues that they looked at. Anything that you find is in reference to Bundy. So my immediate thought is, what if it wasn't Bundy? Was the work done to look into other options? Or is it one of those that these cases would have immediately gone cold if there weren't someone like Bundy in the mix? So just something to think about there. Musing number two. So we know that Shelley was found very deep in a mine shaft. Now, going on the assumption that Shelley was a Ted Bundy victim, you wonder if this could be the same in the cases of Julie Cunningham and Denise Oliverson that we covered last week in which their bodies have not been found. It does make you wonder if he found a mine shaft or somewhere else that their bodies could be very deeply concealed to where 
first off, Bundy could go back and visit them, as we know is something that he liked to do, and would also keep them concealed for long periods of time without being found by someone. I mean, quite honestly, we're probably kind of lucky that Shelley's body was even found. We just happened to have two hikers that wanted to check out an old mine shaft and just happened to go back and really check in. They followed their gut and said, you know, there was a bad smell there. We need to go see what's up. And they, you know, found her body then. So what's to say that Julie and Denise are not someplace like that just waiting to be found? Musing number three. I highly recommend the article that I have linked on AltitudeCrime.com from the American Scholar written by Kristen Iverson. It's called When Death Came to Golden. It's a really, really interesting and heartfelt and heartbreaking article regarding Shelley. So Kristen, the writer, actually started dating Shelley's brother Mark about two years after her disappearance. And she dated him very seriously, like they were talking a future and were very involved and she knew the family very well. And it's just such a wonderful glimpse into really how something like this affects a family. As I always say in our episodes, you know, remember these are real people with real families and real heartbreak. And she just is so eloquent in talking about it. And as is very unfortunate, so Shelley died so young. Mark also died at the age of 24 in a rock climbing accident. So that family really had two very devastating deaths, not very far apart from each other. It's a very well-written and thoughtful article, and I highly recommend that you read it. Musing number four. Now, this is a big one, and this is another big reason of why I initially wanted to cover... Ted Bundy's time in Colorado was, in an odd way, Colorado really kind of fades away in the telling of Ted Bundy's story. And really because he did so many terrible things. I think there's a lot of emphasis on the murders in Washington because it's really the beginning of his killing spree. And then you have a big emphasis on Florida, which is the end of his killing spree and his terrible murders at the Chi Omega house. But it's just so wild that he did so many bad things that the man escaped twice from prison in Colorado, and it's like a blip on the radar. To be honest, as much as I'm into true crime, I knew he escaped once. I had no idea he escaped two times. And it really, you know, shows how... I said this in our last episode, how he has so many victims and they totally become these, like like playing cards of victims that are just like, you know, put on the screen together when you're watching a documentary, just like this rabble of victims, and they kind of all blur together. And I think Colorado's that middle part that just kind of is like, uh, then he killed more people and then this happened. So I really wanted to tell the stories of those victims and those other victims that are potentially connected to him. Musing number five. So there's another odd Colorado connection in the telling of the Ted Bundy story. For those of you that are familiar with Ted Bundy's death row confessions and kind of the people he was talking to at that time, one of the people he was talking to was a man named James Dobson, who is now Dr. James Dobson. So at the time, Dobson had an organization called Focus on the Family. That organization is now headquartered in Colorado Springs. It was in California at the time, but now is in Colorado Springs. And Dobson actually spoke with Bundy specifically about the dangers of pornography. And Bundy kind of talked about that, like, 
porn fueled what he did, which I think was just kind of a Bundyism to have somebody talk to him and get attention from somebody. But those were conversations that were had. And while Dobson was not in Colorado at the time, I did find that interesting that there's that other Colorado connection there. Musing number six. So there has been a lot of renewed interest in Bundy from the public in the last year, year and a half. We know there's been multiple Netflix and Amazon docudramas that have come out specifically about Ted Bundy. And what prompted this was it was the 30-year anniversary of Bundy's execution at Florida State Prison by electric chair. So it kind of spurred this new onslaught of information about Ted Bundy for like the streaming world. Netflix actually had a plea to their viewers at one point to stop lusting after Ted Bundy. And this was after the release of the docuseries Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes. The tweet from Netflix's Twitter account read, quote, I've seen a lot of talk about Ted Bundy's alleged hotness and would like to gently remind everyone there are literally thousands of hot men on the service, almost all of whom are not convicted serial murders, unquote. And this is something I talked about last episode, that the Ted Bundy story is told with Ted Bundy as the hero in a way. And I think this just shows that as well, that there's such a focus on him and not on the victims. I do love, though, there was a big movement that came out and this merchandise is still available on a lot of different platforms. You just need to Google the phrase and then merchandise. But I think it's a great message. There's a lot out there that says Bundy was not hot. And I think that's a very, very important message. Musing number seven. And this is my last one. And I think it really wraps up this story altogether. I think so much of why the Ted Bundy story is told with Ted Bundy as the figurehead is he is our worst fear. He's the smiling face with criminal intentions. We know to be afraid of the creaky white vans with no windows. We know to be afraid of the dark alleys. We know to be afraid of the leering man. But unfortunately, the biggest, baddest wolves are the ones that look least like it. There's a really great quote in Michael Roberts reporting for Westward that I think really sums it up. So Morgan County Sheriff Jim Crone said this decades later after Bundy was in Colorado, and he said, quote, As brutal and violent as Bundy was, there are hundreds, yes, hundreds more like him in the United States. And though these people are the ones that pop up in movies and in our nightmares, I have to remind people, unfortunately, But as realistic as it is, we are far more likely to be victimized by those we know and trust, not by a good-looking, charming guy with their arm in a cast, unquote. And I don't think I can say it any better than that. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you again for your patience. Thanks for listening to all my thoughts on these cases and the enigma that is Ted Bundy. Please reach out and let me know what you thought or if you have questions or thoughts, I'd love to hear them. You can reach me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And there's an email on the website at AltitudeCrime.com along with source materials for this episode and the link to the new Altitude Crime Patreon account. If you don't already, please help grow our crime clan by following or subscribing on your favorite podcast platform or subscribing on YouTube. 
Thank you so much for spending part of your week with me, and I cannot wait to tell you another story next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 53, Ted Bundy in Colorado, Part 2, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.